everyone. Today, we have Professor Pankaj Chandra with us to talk on the new education policy of 2020. Professor Chandra is the Vice Chancellor of Ahmedabad University and Professor of Operations and Supply Chain Management at Amrut Modi School of Management, Ahmedabad University. He was the director of IIM Bangalore from 2007 to 2013 and professor of operations and technology management at IIM Ahmedabad and IIM Bangalore. He also holds a degree in BTEC from the Banaras Hindu University and a PhD from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. He has been a full-time faculty in McGill University, Montreal and IIM Ahmedabad. He has also been a visiting professor at the University of Geneva, International University of Japan, Cornell University, and Reading University, Beijing. He was the first associate dean academics at ISB Hyderabad. Professor Chandra was a member of the Government of India Committee of Rejuvenation of Higher Education that relooked at the Indian higher education system as well as the Committee of the Autonomy of Central Institutions. He was also a member of the Telecom Regulatory Authority of India. Professor Chandra's research and teaching interest includes manufacturing management, supply chain coordination, building technological capabilities, higher education policy, and high-tech entrepreneurship. His recent book titled Building Universities That Matter studies issues of governance, change, and institution building in Indian universities. He serves on boards of several firms and institutions nationally and internationally and has also been involved with various startups. Thank you, Professor Chandra, for joining us today. Thank you very much, um, Kashmira. These are truly unprecedented times, even for the academic world. This new education policy is coming after 34 years and recommends many transformational ideas. It is noteworthy that not only academia people are talking about this policy, but even various stakeholders from industrialists to individual students are interested in this new education policy. It focuses on experiential learning and critical thinking. It will surely change the scenario of education system in India to a large extent. So, Professor Chandra, can you please tell us what the new education policy is all about and your thoughts on that? Okay, you know, um, um, first and foremost, just to um, let you all know that periodically governments set out education policies, um, which are essentially to give direction to the sector of uh, education and and, uh, and and employment. Now, this particular one um, really has come after a very long time. And the last policy was developed in mid 80s. Subsequently, there were two other um, committees that were set up by the government. One of them that you mentioned, the rejuvenation um, of higher education, which is also known as Yashpal Committee. Um, and the second was a knowledge, uh, National Knowledge Commission that was established um, again somewhere around 2008, 2009. And both of them came out with their reports. However, the governments of that time did not implement those ideas. And so it's almost after 10 years that a new policy has come. And, 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 and there are many interesting features of this policy. You know, if you think about it, um, and I'm going to talk only about higher education, though this policy also talks of school education. There are probably six sections in which that policy can be divide, decided, I mean, um, divided. 
the first of the first is um, the one that relates to improving teaching and learning processes. Um, how do we teach and how do we learn? And what should be the mechanism through which um, our students should learn so that they become um, uh, agents of innovation and become highly employable all over the world? So that's one. The second part relates to teacher. And how do you build characteristics and training of a teacher? The third relates to third part of this report relates to governance and regulatory systems. Um, today, the education institutions are um, regulated by both the center and the state because education is part of the concurrent list. Um, and then you have um, MHRD which is the Ministry of Higher Education, um, Human Resource Development, and UGC at the center. And you have state departments in every state that essentially um, go and, and, and decide what should be the framework of, of, of curriculum, what should be the ways in which institutions should be governed, and so on and so forth. Um, and that's where they've kind of messed up over the last several years. Um, this has been the biggest challenge in the country. And, and this policy, once again, um, picks up and, and creates a, a structure, a new structure around it. The fourth um, aspect of this policy relates to structure of universities. How should a university be governed? Um, and what should be um, ways in which uh, uh, research and teaching and learning is integrated within a university. The fifth aspect is about funds, because all of this requires funds. And, and how is that to be allocated? And the last part that this policy deals with is research. Um, you see, research is very essential, both for, um, for making your courses and teaching that much more cutting edge but also for finding solutions to the problems of the society. And, uh, and it is through this, this research at academic institutions that society becomes more innovative. Um, and, and you know, the research that universities do today um, become products and services that companies pick up 30 years, 40 years later. So those are some of the broad areas that this policy addresses. Um, and, and I think it's quite, I must say a few things about it. Um, one that, um, yeah, there's, there are lots of very, very useful features of this policy, especially those that relate to um, teachers, teaching and learning, <clears throat> and some that relate to, um, to, to governance. Um, the second part uh, is, Many of the ideas in there are actually not new. Um, if, they, if you pick up uh, all the past reports from 60s, the Kotari Commission report in 60s, um, and all subsequent education policies, and especially the Yashpal Committee report and the Knowledge Commission report, you will find many of the ideas that this report has um, are in there. Um, and so have many papers and books across the world that have written about it. Um, so in that sense, 
I think what this policy document does is it provides a good compilation of many good practices that exist elsewhere that we should have in our country and 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 that uh, uh, people have been aspiring and talking about it the government uh, has also talked about uh, uh, increasing the outlay on funds from um, as of now 3% to education to about 6% um, just to put this in perspective burkina faso which is a very small country in west africa uh, spends more than 6% of its gdp already um, on education so uh, those are i think the um, the key features key sections there are lots of detailed features and we can talk about it as we kind of go along but the big question is how do you go about implementing it and and so the proof of the pudding lies in eating and god is in details so we'll have to see how this gets implemented okay professor so for you the first question about policy from us is that the new education policy says that it targets to increase the ger that is gross enrollment ratio to to 50% by 2035 do you think the implementation of this policy will help them achieve this target and how so i um, i think you're talking about not 50% but 50 um and that's the the number you know um i hope you know that india's gross enrollment ratio is somewhere in mid 20s i think it's 25 or 26 if i'm not mistaken um however there are already states in the country that are at the number that you are mentioning you know sikkim is above 50 chandigarh is close to 50 tamil nadu is i think 49 of 50 or there about something of that kind and and then there are states like up which is um i think mid 20s early 20s um you have chhattisgarh um and and uh, which is again in 18 and bihar that's 13 and gujarat which is just about barely making 20 so um there's lot of diversity in these um gers across the states and the average of them makes the ger of the country right and and ger for those who do not know implies that what fraction of your um um eligible age group between 18 and 23 i think that's the age group if i'm not mistaken um are in college are attending a university now um you have to ask yourself this question what prevents the country from having a ger of 50 or more by the way um many advanced countries have a ger ranging from 70 to 90 so 50 is uh, no big shakes okay if you look at three states of india that have already have 50 have lot of underdevelopment also so the whole idea is you need to have a very high ger now why is it not there um despite the fact that india perhaps has the largest number of colleges and universities in the world even ahead of china so the problem is not availability of colleges i think the problem is with funds you have kids who can't go to college because after barely after finishing class 
or many who don't even make it have to go start working. All right. So if education was free of very low cost for many of them, I think they would be tempted to come into um, into higher education and hence increase the GR would increase. The second is most of these colleges and universities have very poor infrastructure and resources. You know, um, a, a university is not about buildings. A university is about teachers, plain, simple teachers. Um, and that's really where a very major problem lies in the country. You don't have adequate, very good teachers. Every university, every college in the country is understaffed because government does not provide funds to them to recruit teachers. You know, um, a university like Delhi <clears throat> has uh, a shortage of about, I think, three to 500 teachers. Um, so if you can't have that many number of teachers, there's no way you can have classes, many more sections of a class and have more enrollment. And, 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 and in the same way, you, um, good education um, is also about having facilities. You go into libraries, you don't have adequate books or journals or, or, or databases in library. You don't have labs and lab facilities. You don't have resources for kids to do internships. You don't have uh, resources to do extra programs and employability related skill building programs or concentrations, which the kids will then pick up in order to get um, uh, get jobs. So many actually after class 12 start thinking, what's a big deal of, of um, uh, are going to college because the quality is pretty bad. I won't get much out of it. And so they drop out. Some drop out because of financial reasons, some drop out because of, of, of these quality reasons. And actually some also drop out simply because um, their social community does not value or promote education very much. There are certain communities in our country where enrollment is very low. Sometimes there's also discrimination against many communities in this country, which prevents these kids from getting financial aid or support to get into a college and, and, and then find, hence, your GR is very low. So I don't see how this policy can at all help until unless the fundamental reasons behind it, which is largely um, uh, uh, related to financials, um, get corrected. However, having said that, there's one place where it might add a little bit, and that is, you know, in my mind, um, an education is not worth at all if it's not of high quality. So it's better that you don't go to college rather than going to a place which teaches badly. Now, if that quality improves with this new education policy, then I have a feeling some of it will show up in the GR, but not of the kind of numbers that you're talking about as of now. Well, after listening to you, I think we have to look upon the issues first, and then we must think about increasing uh, ways to increase the GR. So as we have several boards in our country, for example, uh, CBSC, State Board, etc., how will they change their syllabus? Will it still be different? 
moreover in a new education policy schooling systems like patshala gurukul madrasa home schooling are being encouraged even as all teachers are to be trained in a highly standardized manner will teachers trained thus be able to teach in all these types of schools so your actually your question has three parts you know one is school boards second is many of these informal um education systems which are not necessarily in the formal sector and the last is about uh, teachers and standardization let me address, address them in that manner yes so the um, the new education policy does talk about standardizing a structure of school education <clears throat> okay and and they talk about the pre primary link to the primary to middle school to high school and to to um to the last four years um and and they bring in skills and other things into it so i have a feeling that over a period of time it may not happen immediately but over a period of time almost all boards will align a little bit to this policy okay. and and the government will have to do lots of um uh, engagement with education secretaries and ministers and also those who run these boards in different states um to do that now having said that there's going to be a challenge because education and especially um, i mean all of education is in the concurrent list which means school education um, um from a state board and its rules and regulations are all designed by the state so gujarat may decide that it only wants to teach in in gujarati up to class 8 which used to do um and and i think they will continue doing that if uh, if that happens now of course they reduce that the period but what it will do is it will actually leave less space in that curriculum to um uh, to be able to do what the kind of things that this policy talks about so it's first most important that the central government and the state government sit down and realign the boards and um, leaving the flexibility to the states where they want to bring in their own ideas in but at the same time buying uh, borrowing the good points from this and implementing state the informal sector is a very very big challenge because there is no regulatory mechanism around it um and it, and often at times it should not be also because education um is um is about experimentation um and it, one must leave enough space for schools and different boards to experiment otherwise um we have um as it has happened in last 70 years we've been a a, a victim of group think that there is a group in delhi that starts to think what should be the education policy in the country and everybody um is asked to follow it education is about experimental uh experimenting very deeply and differently and spreading those experiments and good ideas so i have a feeling um, um these uh, informal methods will fall by the wayside this is my expectation now the last part on teachers i think one of the biggest challenges of higher education in india has been its sarkari karan you know the government in order to control education and the bureaucracy in order to control education actually have want to standardize it 
Education is just the opposite of standardization. Every kid is very different. And just to get efficiency out of a system, you have large classes and everybody's taught the same thing. Everybody's expected to score in the same way in the same exam. This is just contrary to education. And, and, and I think this is really where there's a weakness in this report that it has completely failed while, while, while the teaching learning side is very exciting. It has completely failed to lift the teacher education and teacher training and teacher preparation part of it to the same level of excitement and to the same level of enlightenment as it is elsewhere. If the teacher training is completely standardized, um, I think this policy will rarely get implemented. So that's my response to you. Well, I think the implementation is going to be very much challenging in our country. So how does this policy works for the rural areas, especially in places without proper facilities? So that's where you need the resources, right? You need nine to 10 percent of GDP invested in the higher in higher education. And that's where you need public and private systems both to operate so that they go and build the facilities. And you know, facilities are not about buildings. While it is, you need to have drinking water, you need to have bathrooms, and you need to have comfortable classrooms for kids to study, and sports fields and, and activity uh, centers. But it can be done very simply. The place where you need to invest is in get the best and brightest to come and become teachers. And as we have seen, many don't good teachers don't go into rural areas. And I think we must have a program that makes rural schools that much more, um, I mean, of high quality and provide systems around those schools, which will, which will attract people from um, other centers to come and teach there. And, and there are some very good models. There's a um, school system that Rajiv Gandhi had set up in early 80s called Navode Vidyale um, school system. Um, so there's one Navode Vidyale in every school. And these are boarding schools essentially for kids, I think from class six onwards, but uh, for those that come from rural backgrounds. And they are actually, most of them are very high quality centers of education. So we have to ensure that a um, rural schools are first and foremost equipped well, largely with facilities and teachers. Second, um, I think they, this education policy will require a far more enlightened set of people who will first understand it, create experiments in learning, and then implementing it. So um, uh, that mechanism also needs to flow from um, um, to these rural um, educational institutions. Otherwise, um, it's going to be a very major challenge. And I see no reason why we can't do it. I mean, we can send um, a, a robot towards Mars and we can do all kinds of things. Um, we can definitely create um, absolutely great model schools, which are, which, are, which are great vocational education facilities, which have great science education, which have wonderful 
liberal arts facility, which has a good library, which is a good sports field and good teachers in every taluka. Why should kids have to travel several um, uh, tens of kilometers to attend a school? I think we must do it immediately. That should be a very high priority for us. So the new education policy says that unskilled jobs will be taken over by machines. How will this policy get implemented so that every person in this country is skilled? Do you think unemployment may increase if the new policies are implemented? Well, uh, I mean, I don't think one has one can blame the new education policy for unemployment. That would be pretty unfair. You know, new education policy looks into the future to prepare young people for new kinds of employment opportunities that will arise for the future of work. Now, if the future of work is going to be automated, then there are going to be some job losses. But as it has happened, and I'll give you a few examples in a minute, but as it has happened in the past, the automation and many other systems also lead to new opportunities and new jobs. And economies need to pivot. Countries need to pivot from one system of employment and work environment into another one. You know, when, um, when in Britain, um, the coal mining in late 1600 and 1700 was done manually, um, the uh, when the um, steam engine came, um, or when when power and light came, actually all the coal miners in um, Newcastle in U uh, in UK lost the jobs. Um, when because the, um, the 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 mines were getting automated, but it also changed the nature of mining. The new manufacturing companies came. The automation software companies came subsequently and they employed people. The only thing we have to keep in mind is have we trained our young people appropriately so that they are ready for the new world when the new opportunity arises? If there are jobs that are going to appear in IoT driven manufacturing and, and, and which uses sensors and where reliability and, and predictive maintenance kind of ideas are going to be more important, um, then manual workers will lose job. But we have to retrain people. We have to prepare young people for this new world that you may not be able to escape from. There's a very good example from India also, you know, and it relates to, uh, to handloom. It's very interesting that handloom um, is, is, is um, um, one of the technological inventions that India mastered in early um, 13th, 14th century. And uh, I once was at the University of Tokyo library and there was a archive letter, which was from, the, um, from one of the kings at that time who had sent emissaries to India to go and study the handloom because it was most advanced. Um, and, uh, and, and as a result, uh, they built an automated loom and they improved upon it. But India um, actually protected, didn't know what to protect, whether they should protect handloom 
as a loom and technology or whether they should protect um, the person working on handloom and that person's job. India decided to protect the handloom. As a result, craft went out, handloom workers started to suffer, and today they're in very bad shape. So one has to be very careful. Um, technology is just about a medium. It's, it's not the message. Message is what we do. Message is the craft. Message is our, our innov innovative ability. Message is our competence and, 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 and skills. And that's what we should build in our young people. And then we won't have the challenge that you are referring to. So, uh, Professor, when I read the policy, I could uh, see that the ideas of the new policy have been taken from the ancient Indian literally. So, the rich heritage of ancient and eternal Indian knowledge and thoughts has been a guiding light for this policy. Though the thoughts and ideas of education of ancient India are being involved, will this policy be able to education? I lost your last couple of sentences, Kashmira yeah so i was just asking will this policy be uh, be able to meet the class of the education so i have a very uh, uh, sorry to interrupt sir uh, kashmir again repeat the entire question again okay. okay and you can speak slowly kashmira you don't have to just rush through okay i'm sorry for that go ahead When I read the policy, I could uh, say that the ideas from ideas ideas of the new policy have been taken from the ancient Indian literally. So the rich heritage of ancient and eternal Indian knowledge and thought has been a guiding light for this policy. Though the thoughts and ideas of education of ancient India are being involved, will this policy be able to meet that class of education? You know, I have a slightly different way of looking at it. You know, um, ancient India to me is a heritage and a legacy, but it draw. It is not something that I have to necessarily go back three thousand years to look into what was happening at that point of time. I think we need to understand how to create an ecosystem in today's environment that is very rich and that meets the requirements of the times. Um, now ancient arts and and these liberal arts that the 64 colors etc that the report talks about um are um we have it but so do other civilizations the point is not which of those and whether we relate back to those times the point is about interdisciplinary education that in order to prepare a young person to meet the requirements of the world that young person's education should be broad. You know, um, if I, I once looked at a prospectus and of 1929 of Baranas Hindu University, and that prospectus says that everybody coming to the university to do a bachelor's will study science and geology and language and Sanskrit and, and, and so on and so forth, irrespective of what they were doing. That's the point that this policy is making. It's saying to us that, you know, in the past, we've had this kind of breadth. But at the same point of time, we, uh, uh, we lost it by focusing too narrowly at some, some uh, at very early stages of a student's life, 
And now we need to get back to building both broad and deep education. Um, now, I want, want to, once, uh, um, to add something to it. This is not about creating a Renaissance man or a woman. This is about creating depth in an area, but at the same time being so broad and understanding of many things that your depth becomes deeper, that you're able to solve very complex challenges through knowledge systems that are very diverse and be able to work with others to solve these complex problems. That's how I see that perspective that is given in the na national education policy. I don't see it as going back to what was happening at times of Nalanda or Takshila uh, and Vikramshila. Um, it would not make sense at all to do that. So, uh, Professor, as uh, there was a global education development agenda in 2015 and there was a goal for set, India in, and uh, the agenda was for sustainable development and uh, India adopted in 2015 to, to ensure inclusive and equitable quality education and promote lifelong learning opportunities for, for all by 2030. Do you think this target can be achieved by 2030? And what percentage of the target is achieved till now? I, um, I think the question needs to be posed very differently. First and foremost, I don't think we are going to make the SDG targets by 2030. Um, whether it relates to um, uh, water, lifelong learning, climate change, um, good health, public sanitation, if you add all of them together, I doubt if we are going to reach that, I have no idea what fraction of it we've met by now. But the point is, um, should our education be impacted by it? Answer is certainly. I think sustainability, um, lifting people out of poverty, reducing inequality, providing dignified living livelihood and living to people um, uh, managing lives of elderly, um, uh, protecting the natural resources, all of them should become central to our education system. You know, um, and, and for one simple reason, and let me give you um, a slightly different way of looking at it. I'm, I like um, looking at these challenges in a slightly more integrated way. And they are, um, think of, about four axes. One axis has um, disciplines. So you have biology, data, new materials, and so on and so forth. All of them which are a new areas of innovation. You have another axis, which is transport, health, food, um, and, 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 and so on and so forth, which were all uh, services or areas that were managed by government that are now being managed publicly, uh, privately. The third axis has things like air, forest, land, water. And the fourth axis is individual and community. Now, what does, why am I saying these four axes? Actually, it's the intersection of things on this axis that leads us to create a more sustainable 
environment. If you think about it, you know, if you look at biology, uh, take health, take um, um, air, take uh, uh, community, you are actually talking about the situation in which we are today, which is health-related pandemic. This it's its intersection of many of these axes which gives us to phenomena and challenges that we are facing, and they also are asking us to address them. As soon as you talk about people and water and individual and community, you're talking about people and their lives, which is exactly what the um, what the SDGs are about. How do you lift the poor? How do you protect the nature? How do you clean the environment? because the next generation is going to tell us you didn't do enough and and most important and this is most important for young um, young students it's in the intersection of many of these axes lie new opportunities new jobs new uh, uh, new knowledge um, new startups all of them will come in it and if we come put them together you actually will be able to address them. Now, if we design our education system to integrate many of these knowledge systems, to provide this breadth and depth, then there's a likelihood that we will be able to prepare um, students for this world that the SDG goals um, envision. And, and uh, I think the new education policy at least gives a little bit of a push in that direction. Uh, so, Professor, after listening to you, the SDG 4 is uh, somewhere related to the issues which we are facing right now in our country. So do you think the uh, new policy can be a barrier to this goal which we have set? Why do you say that? I mean, can you elaborate? Why do you say that the new um, um education policy may stand as a barrier to sdg4 uh because i think that uh like as there are too many issues we must go and uh take care about so and even the new education policy requires many standardized things and uh many other uh facilities which can't be provided in rural areas so will it affect no, but I think uh, you see, um, don't tie um, everything together. I mean, I mean, new education policy is not a solution, only solution to to do SDG four goals. The new education policy is one cog in the wheel, and the government needs to do many things with it. If it provides the kind of investment, if it gets you the right teachers, if it's it helps institutions to devise their own curriculum that are sustainability oriented. I think you would uh, um, probably be able to move in that direction. Okay. So should we constantly change our policy with changing times and requirements or should we search for one perfect policy and implement it for as long as we keep the previous uh, policy? So uh, Kashmira, just like there is no perfect person or a perfect um, um, leader of a nation or a nation, how can there be a perfect policy? And also policy needs to react to, policy's purpose is to react to changing times. Because when the times change, 
uh, when the uh, economic and social environment changes, um, you need to have a policy. There's a second purpose of a policy also. If you want to change the environment, you want to change the social structure of a society, then you build a new policy, isn't it? So many of the newer countries like Singapore and, 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 and the, uh, have done it that way. So um, I think the policies need to change with time. There may be certain things in any education policy that are central to any policy. Everybody, you want students to learn. You want um, academic institutions to um, be able to attract absolutely top quality teachers. You want these institutions to innovate. You want these institutions to do R&D. These are very central. The question may be, how do you go about doing it? And to what purpose? Those are defined by the environment and by the society in which we live and the times in which we live. It's very important that in 2020, um, you know, with the, um, with, with the challenge of the pandemic, um, which is really um, uh, putting to tatters our entire health uh, system, which barely exists, and it's telling us that we've not paid adequate attention. And if we don't do enough, then perhaps in times to come, it may be the climate change that will lead to the next crisis and a bigger one sooner than, um, than today. And uh, what is it that, the, that an education system can do to prepare people, prepare the mindsets of people about consumption, about the environment, about about their own rights, about equality, um, that actually um, should change. And, uh, uh, and I think in there, a policy, um, uh, a new policy is always very helpful. And, uh, and a related question is, you know, um, everybody's been talking about what happens post pandemic. Um, and we have to ask ourselves this question. Did we like the world as it existed before pandemic happened? And, and that's a very important question for everybody to ask. And if not, then we need policies to change that. If yes, then we need policies to strengthen what we had. So policies do need to change with time. Thank you so much, Professor Chandra, for this wonderful thought of yours. I would like to express my deep gratitude towards Professor Chandra for joining us today and sharing his views on the new education policy. We hope that our audience grasps the most out of this conversation and develops a critical point of view. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kashmira, and thank you, Stepwell Ahmedabad, for, uh, for doing this interview. I really enjoyed it. And I hope your listeners find their own answers to what um, uh, what this policy might be able to do for us. Thank you. Uh, Samkit, we can stop recording now. Yeah, I'll stop recording. <laughs> because now I will get back to.